Why don't we read our text, and then we'll pray and get right into it. Psalm 84, beginning in verse 5. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful um, treasure chest of hymns, these poems that were given to the Hebrew Psalter. They've now been communicated to us. What, what an amazing resource when it comes to heart work, heart surgery. Lord, we want to lay bare our hearts to you this week. We want to open up our hearts. Lord, we know it all begins and ends in our heart. You desire so much from us, and it all needs to come from our heart. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to take a step back this week and examine the state of our heart. Father, we love you. We thank you that you're gentle toward us, that you're gracious, and that you're merciful. And we rely upon all of your mercies and compassions this week. But Lord, we are serious about meeting with you and hearing from you. And we desire, Lord, that you do a great work in our hearts in this time together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is like a roller coaster. It's full of ups and downs, highs and lows. There are sharp turns and steep drops, and slow climbs, and fast straightaways. At times, you're calm, you're chatty with your friends. At other times, your knuckles turn white, clutching onto the bar that's laying in your lap. In everyone's life, there's ups and downs. There's good news and bad news. And it's the same way in Christian ministry. A pastor's service to God also consists of some good news and some bad news. For example, good news. You baptized seven people today in the river. Bad news. You lost two of the new converts in the swift current. Good news. You opened up a Facebook account to stay in touch with your congregation. Bad news. No one accepts your friend request. Good news, the elders want to send you to the Holy Land. Bad news, they're stalling until the next war breaks out. Good news, you finally found a worship leader who plays your style of music. Bad news, everyone in the band revolted and quit. Good news, the high school group in your church came to your house for a surprise visit. Bad news. It was in the middle of the night and they were armed with toilet paper and shaving cream. Good news. Someone emailed you the perfect illustration for your Sunday sermon. You know where this is going. Bad news. You preached that sermon last Sunday. Good news. The Calvary Chapel women's softball team finally won a game. Bad news. They beat the men's softball team. Good news, church attendance rose dramatically over the last three weeks. Bad news, 
you were on vacation. <laughs> well, even in ministry, there are ups and downs. Life is like a roller coaster. People get saved, but you can't manage to save a dime. People you trusted and served alongside stab you in the back. People angry with God take out their frustrations on you. At times, you're on cloud nine. The Spirit is at work. His blessings are tangible. His faithfulness is evident. His joy is flowing. Yet there are days when clouds of hopelessness roll in like a heavy fog and just sort of hang in the air. Here's the truth. Life is messy. You know, it doesn't pan out the way you, you had always planned. I'm still trying to figure this out. Why does Tiger Woods win championships while he's cheating on his wife, but he straightens up and he can't hit the fairway? That's not fair. Live long enough and you'll end up dealing with all kinds of contradictions and injustices and perplexities. Life is not always predictable and straightforward. Life is like Cliff Lee. It throws a nasty curveball. And as a pastor with strong faith and high expectations, I think we feel this more than others. The church prays for the lady in the coma and God miraculously heals her. Her condition gets upgraded from critical to stable. But then you come home from church and you can't go to sleep because your baby has the croup and coughs all night. I mean, if God handles comas, why can't He handle croup? You know, when I was younger, I had a lifetime ahead of me to serve the Lord. The possibilities seemed endless. I had a boundless supply of energy. Now I'm 53. I'm not ready to be put out to the pasture. Not yet. I've got a few good years left. But I'm not the same dude I was at 33 or at 23. I mean, after three services on Sunday, my body now takes a mandatory nap. It doesn't matter where I'm at. In an elders meeting, at a friend's house, in a counseling session. At exactly 3 p.m., my body defaults to nap mode. It just happens. And at 53, there's more of life behind me now than in front of me. No longer does my life seem endless and unlimited. Every birthday is like a siren. It's a warning. The clock is ticking. Time is running out. You know, I, I never considered getting old might happen to me. I didn't plan on the post-prime stage of life. It's been said, life is the continual process of getting used to things we never expected. And this is not only proven true in my personal life, this sums up our ministry. On the one hand, I've pastored the same church for 30 years, but not really. This church just turned over countless times. People come and go. Folks who were pillars in the church get replaced. Our church is like a tap-tap. If you've ever been to Haiti, you know this is the main mode of transportation in Haiti. A tap-tap is a covered pickup that drives around Port-au-Prince stopping and starting, letting people on, letting people off. You tap on the side when you want the driver to start or stop. A tap-tap is colorful and crowded. 
It's a cross between a carnival bus, a taxi, and a paddy wagon. All kinds of people are on board. They're just hanging on the tap-tap. And you don't measure the usefulness of a tap-tap by counting the people in the seats at any one time. You watch it as it travels along the route. People tap on here and they tap off there. There's constant change. And the church is like a tap-tap. At times you wonder, did she jump off too early? Or did he stay on long enough? But that's really not my issue. Jesus is the Lord. I'm just the tap-tap driver. For the time they're on board, you love them. And you move them forward. But the crowd always varies on a tap-tap. Just as life goes through certain seasons, so does a church. We've had times of bounty when we did more abroad. We've had lean years when we've had to tighten our belt to keep the home fire stoked. For years, we've felt led by God to have a single worship leader. For the last several months, now we've been rotating among three guys. For 20 years, we had a Sunday night service. Recently, we've gone to a different format. God never changes. His word is eternal. It's always sure and certain. But a church goes through seasons of change, just as does a family or a person. Here's my point. Whether we're conscious of it at any moment or not, life is a roller coaster. Change is inevitable. It's a progression. There are definite seasons. God never intended for our circumstances to remain constant. Now, we use a pleasant term. We call each other creatures of habit. Oh, we like our coffee with two sugars and one cream. We go to the grocery store on Thursday. Not Monday. Thursday is our day. When my 75-year-old mom goes to the diner, she orders sweet tea with light ice. Light ice? I mean, we want our lives to be exact, predictable. We like the illusion that we're in control. But rather than call ourselves creatures of habit, we'd be more honest if we used the term worshiper of stability. (laughs) For isn't that what we really want? Rather than embrace life's temporary nature, rather than realize that God made life not to hold on to, but to use up. We worship stability. We do everything possible to resist real change and to guard the status quo. And this is especially true in the church. For church folk are notoriously resistant. They get stubborn and stuck in their ways and then they blame it on God's will. John Piper wrote, Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. That God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is the reason that the Psalms are in your Bible. 
For these ancient Hebrew poems were written out of every possible human emotion and set of circumstances. No matter who you are or where you've been or what you're up against, there is a psalm that shares your plight. And here's what the psalms teach us. The point of life and ministry is not to hold on, but to trust God. Situations will change. People will change. My family will change. My church will change. I will change. But God's character never changes. He is faithful. And this is why 11 times in these 150 psalms, the psalmist calls God my rock. God is our stone mountain. He is solid. He holds in the storm. Life in seasons come and go, but God remains. Hey, don't ever take him for granted. It's the element of surprise. I caught you off guard. King David says it best in Psalm 62. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. When the twister hits and the psalmist's life turns topsy-turvy, he leans on the rock. For it is higher and stronger and sure than even the king himself. He is overwhelmed, but the rock overcomes. This is why the psalms begin the way they do. Psalm 1 describes what makes a man blessed. He delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. In a world that's spinning, the blessed man is planted. He's like a tree growing out of the bank next to this ever-flowing and ever-changing river. But God's Word keeps him grounded. The only surety and certainty in this life is found in the Scriptures. The Psalms portray our changing lives as the circumference and God as the center. Whether it's David in a cave or fleeing Absalom or on the run from Saul. Whether the psalmist is facing an invading army or some unjust treatment or maybe a relentless persecution. You see, he connects all of life to God. One author puts it, somehow David and the other poets managed to make God the gravitational center of their lives so that everything relates to God. Every act and feeling, and experience, and fluctuation of life is measured as it relates to and revolves around the changelessness of God. And this is the pastor's job. For we connect the dots. That's our job. You know, many of the folks that come to our church, for them, life is a Rubik's Cube. It's a puzzle. But we're the ones that help them align the rows and the colors with God's Word. We, we show them how God made life and how it intertwines with Him. In, in his book, Soul Searching, author Christian Smith, he boils down the perceptions of God that exist in our contemporary culture. He says that most young evangelical Christians today believe in what he describes as moral therapeutic deism. What we might refer to as the Santa Claus God. 
Moral means right and wrong. There is a right, there is a wrong. Thus, God expects us to be nice. And he prods us to that end by rewarding good and punishing evil. Therapeutic means that God helps us resolve our hang-ups and live happy. And deism is the idea that God is distant and uninvolved in our daily lives. Oh, on really important occasions, God might come down and get involved. But for the most part, God leaves it up to us as to how we run the day-to-day. Moral, therapeutic deism. God wants us to be good for goodness sake. He exists to make us happy. He drops in on us once a week. You might as well believe in Santa Claus. This is not the God of the Bible. And yet, according to Christian Smith, this is the perception of God held by most of our church members. Well, let me tell you, the 150 Psalms totally refute this concept. Yes, God is moral. It does pay to be good and godly, but payday doesn't always come in this life. Psalm 14, Psalm 73, mull over the prosperity of the wicked. Every moral contradiction doesn't get sorted out in this life. And God cares about our mental health. He heals the brokenhearted. Yet God doesn't exist to make us giddy. We exist to bring Him glory. And God is far from aloof or removed. No, the psalmist teaches us that God is intricately woven into every detail of our lives. That His heart beats with our heart. One of the reasons I've been so drawn to the Psalms in recent days is their rawness and their frankness. This collection of Hebrew poems, it approaches life with brutal honesty. None of the psalmists hide behind a mask. They all come to God free from the shackles of religiosity and phony spirituality. They speak their mind. Their joy is unbridled. They unleash their angst. Their questions are clear. These brothers let it all hang out. Prior to spring 2010, no one ever knew that Iceland had a volcano. But in March of last year, Mount, and I've been practicing this, Alaflaflaukuk, Mount Alaflaflaukuk, I had to practice because there's probably somebody from Iceland here. It always happens to me. A couple visiting from Iceland. Mount Alafaflalukuk blew its lid. You remember this. The funny name means island, mountain, glacier. A glacier is an ocean of ice. And it wasn't real apparent to anybody that hot molten lava would be bubbling up under a thick sheet of ice. But this thing erupted and it sprayed debris and ash and dirty ice all over the continent of Europe. The volcano brought air travel to a standstill. And when I think of that volcano, it brings to mind some pastors. Emotions and hurts and disappointments are bubbling up deep down inside us. They're trapped under a thick, hard layer of coldness. And because they're never allowed to vent, one day those feelings erupt and they do damage. The Psalms, on the other hand, give a voice to our inner rumblings. 
They let us know it's okay to approach God with what we really feel. Not with what we're supposed to feel or what is religiously correct to feel, but what we actually, deep down in the depths of our being, really and truly feel. If you're mad at your enemies and you want God to kick in their teeth, there's a psalm for you. I love Psalm 58. It's one of my personal favorites. I quote it probably more often than most. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. God allows us to vent a righteous rage. In fact, in a sideways world where the wicked prosper, if there aren't times when you don't scream at the top of your lungs, you're probably, something's probably wrong with you. I question the prospects of your longevity. As a pastor, I hear stuff that curdles my spit. It grieves me. Sin is nasty. It causes my blood to boil. Sinners take advantage of innocent people. And it can't be healthy for a pastor to hear of these cruelties day in and day out without reacting in some visceral way. Emotional nausea is healthy. I like what one author writes. He says, God can handle my unsuppressed rage. I may well find that my vindictive feelings need correction. But only by taking those feelings to God will I have that opportunity for correction and healing. You see, the Psalms prove that there's nothing wrong. In fact, it's needed for us to express our feelings to God. No matter how ugly and angry and toxic those feelings might be. In fact, poisonous feelings can't be neutralized until they're confessed. Have you noticed Jewish people like to argue? Have you noticed this? On our trips to Israel, it's not uncommon to see angry encounters between bus drivers. In the heat of traffic, they yell at each other. You don't really know what they're saying but you know they're not exchanging pleasantries. They didn't teach this in seminary, but apparently Hebrew has some cuss words. (laughs) And yet later, you see these same guys in the hotel restaurant, they're laughing, they're swapping stories as only old friends can do. It's an amazing contrast. But you see, here's what I've learned. Among Jewish people, loud, boisterous expression and deep friendship go together. And here's why. In a culture that places a high priority on hospitality to strangers, confrontation then becomes a sign of intimacy. Jewish custom demands politeness to strangers. That's why letting off a little steam and passionately arguing your point is reserved for friendship. And maybe this is what God is cultivating in these psalms. God is after our friendship. And so he baits us to just come right out and tell him what we think. Even what we think about him. Psalm 10 opens. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Imagine the nerve. Accusing God of hiding when the going gets tough. Then the psalmist goes on to describe the wicked man and how his ways prosper. He wonders why God doesn't stop this evildoer and settle the score. 
The psalmist then encourages God to do what's right. As if God needs the suggestion. He says, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble. He's venting how he feels. He is expressing how it seems. And there's nothing wrong with that. Apparently, the psalmist has a faith that allows him to voice his frustrations with God without it diminishing his respect for God. Psalm 10 ends, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. You have heard the desire of the humble that the man of the earth may oppress no more. The psalmist concludes with the correct theology, but in the getting there, he has to be honest with how life seems and with what he feels. Obviously, his faith is a real-life faith. The psalms teach me that real faith is honest, that real faith doesn't dodge issues or stick its head in the sand, and it teaches me that God is big enough to handle my true feelings. Real faith doesn't tap out or give up when life and faith becomes a struggle. The Psalms encourage me to keep wrestling with truth and grappling with God. To me, it's no accident that the lion's share of the Psalms, 73, almost half, were written by David. For if ever a man connected the dots between life and God, it was David. Everywhere he looked, he saw the glory of God. In Psalm 8, he turns upward. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers. In Psalm 139, he turns inward. You formed my inward parts. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wherever David looked, he saw God. There was no dichotomy of secular and sacred in David's mind. All of life belonged to God. I believe this is why God called David a man after his own heart. You see, David was king, but he never stopped bowing to God. Yet David was far from perfect. We know this. He had a passionate love for God, but he had a strong lust for women. He saw God's glory, but he failed to see the slow deterioration of his own family. David tried to build God a temple, but he couldn't because there was blood on his hands. I mean, like life itself, David was a mixed bag. A brave heart with clay feet. Hey, David doesn't always get it right in life. But he keeps seeking God. David wrote Psalm 27 verse 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. David kept responding to God's inner urges. And I hate to say it, but unlike David, some pastors I know, they have abandoned the inner life. They keep their calendar cluttered with meetings and activities and Bible studies instead of taking the time to press into God. You see, it's easier to water everybody else's garden than it is to weed your own. Our heart gets neglected. You see, the historical books, they turn us outward to find God. He works in the affairs of man. The Gospels turn us to the cross. God ultimately works through Jesus. The prophetic books turn us toward the future. God wins in the end. But the Psalms, they turn us inward, heartward to find God. The Psalms remind us that we are His temple. That God cares about what goes on 
inside our hearts. People often take the wrong approach in interpreting the Psalms. They treat them as a theological treatise. They look to find articles and doctrines. That's a mistake. Rather than dot the theological I's and cross the theological T's and foster creedal accuracy, to me the Psalms seem content with confusion. Rather than sort out truth, they spew out a cacophony of emotion. The psalmist isn't always right. Sometimes he's just honest. You could say the Psalms are a journal of a soul engaged with God. The psalmist doesn't always understand God or what God is doing in his situation. Yet he's loyal to God and he bows to God and he praises God anyway. I take the Psalms as reflections and eruptions and complaints and praises and even peeves from men who loved God dearly while struggling with the realities of life. Put all of it together and it goes by another name. We call it prayer. Ron Allen distills the 150 Psalms down to seven words. Life is hard, but God is good. One of the lessons we learn by studying the Psalms is that both pain and pleasure are intended by God to be part of the human experience. Yes, there are triumphant, celebratory psalms, but not Psalm 6. The psalmist writes, I am weary from my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. Here's a weeping psalm. Squeeze the page and you'll get a a bowl of tears. It doubles over in pain. According to the psalms, at times... God even uses pain to enrich our lives. We should never run from a hurt. We should embrace it and learn from it. C.S. Lewis had a famous line, God whispers to us through our pleasures. He speaks to us through our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to arouse a deaf world. And the Hebrews would agree. But not so in our modern culture. Today's response to pain and despair is to avoid it at all costs. We spend millions of dollars on mind-numbing entertainment and mood-altering prescriptions to avoid God's shouts. Rarely do we ride out a headache without popping a handful of Advil. Do you know sometimes a hospital will withhold pain medication? Not because they want the patient to suffer. But too much sedation masks the symptoms that the doctor needs to observe in order to diagnose the illness. The point is this. At times, pain becomes the doctor's ally. Pain serves a real purpose. It helps the doctor identify what's amiss in the body. This is why it's unwise for us to avoid all pain. We miss God's shouts. There is a poem by Lois Cheney. That sums up the way modern people deal with their sullen moods and their emotional pains and their negative feelings. Miss Cheney writes, Feeling blue? Buy some clothes. Feeling lonely? Turn on the radio. Feeling despondent? Read a funny book. Feeling bored? Watch TV. Feeling empty? Eat a Sunday. Feeling worthless? Clean the house. Feeling sad? Tell a joke. 
Ain't this modern age wonderful? You don't got to feel nothing. There's a substitute for everything. God have mercy on us. And she's right. We try to escape unpleasant feelings rather than let God use them to mold and shape and deepen our lives. Today's Prozac generation has the chemical means now to numb its pain rather than grapple with it. And yet as a result, we lack a strength and a depth that we would gain if we were forced to deal emotionally with life's harsher side. Some people put their hope more in medication than dedication. Today's world has overlooked the underlying premise of the book of Psalms. That God created humankind with a full range of emotion. That each of us has the capacity to rise to heights of ecstasy or sink into the pit of despair. That describes my life from Sunday to Monday. And there are times when only a thin line separates the two extremes. At some point, we're all either at either end of the pendulum. The Psalms teach us that pleasure and pain are both opportunities for God to speak into our lives. There are lessons only learned on the peaks of joy, and there are lessons only learned in the valley of depression. As with life itself, the Psalms are sure to take us both places. It's been said, the Psalms are like a grand piano, and all 88 keys of human emotion get played. And I would add to that, and to make beautiful music, the maestro has to play both the white keys and the dark keys. Life and ministry and the Psalms, they all have a common trait. All three are like a roller coaster. They're dips and climbs. They're squeals and screams, ups and downs. But a roller coaster begins and ends in the same place. So it is with life. It's dust to dust. You go into the world with nothing. You go out with nothing. So it is with ministry. After I've led people to Jesus and the parking lot empties, I realize once again that no one needs Him more than I do. And so it is with the Psalms. These 150 chapters portray life as a journey from God to God. We set out from God, but then we return to God. Listen to Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done, your life doesn't really start until you sense a hunger and thirst for the living God. God plants in every human heart a built-in homing device that leads us back to Him. One day, you lose your taste for this world and you hunger for more. I love Newton's observation, only God is permanently interesting. And here's the next line in Psalm 42. When shall I come and appear before God? Notice this, the hunger we receive from God is what draws us back to God. To the psalmist, life is a journey from God to God. And Psalm 42 calls this journey a pilgrimage. Each year, the Hebrews journeyed to and from the temple. Life was a cycle. Year after year, three times a year, they journeyed 
to the temple, then from the temple, to God, then from God, back to God. David writes in Psalm 42, I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. On our pilgrimages to Israel, a must stop in my mind is where David penned Psalm 42. A beautiful waterfall is the site where David wrote of his thirst for God. It's a holy place, but it's a pain to reach. It's in Banyas, high up in the Golan. We usually arrive around lunchtime, so everybody's hungry. Normally the guide is behind schedule. He doesn't really want to stop. Then you have to hike down this steep staircase. There's lots of reasons to forego this trip. But when we reach the falls, I'm always glad we made the effort. The roar just sort of drowns out all your other concerns. It usually allows for a special moment with God. And this is what a pilgrimage involves. It's a journey of the heart from God and to God. It's from longing to fullness. As David puts it, Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. Deep longing gives way to deep satisfaction. And then it repeats itself. And this, this movement from God to God is not always easy. You know, a pilgrimage has a noble start and a sacred destination. But in between, the pilgrim path can get hard. And it can get perilous. I love to walk from Pilate's judgment, Pilate's pavement, the Lithostrata, through the streets of the Muslim quarter in the old city of Jerusalem. I love walking up the Muslim quarter. You have to fight off vendors and Arab merchants who refuse to take seriously the phrase, no thanks. And then you finally emerge out the Damascus gate into the pollution of a bus stop. You have to dodge Arab taxi drivers as you cross the street. And then you climb up a hill right next to a stone wall. Finally, you enter into this little door marked Garden Tomb. Instantly, the chaos is left behind. You find yourself in this beautiful, peaceful oasis. There's communion waiting for you. You sense the presence of the risen Christ. I love the garden, but it takes a journey through some mean streets to arrive. Now, as a pastor, I'm a pilgrim. My life is a journey from God to God. But as a pastor, I am more than a pilgrim. For I am leading my congregation on a pilgrimage. I'm a tour leader on the journey through life. It's my job to get my group as well from God to God. But it can present some difficulties and some challenges. In a sense, life is a holy land. I mean, go to Israel and you visit some spots that are hard to view as sacred and holy. The streets of Silwan. Hard to see that as being part of the Holy Land. Or the Damascus Gate. There are other places, though, that there's no question there. Say, you know, there's no problem getting alone with God in the Garden Tomb. Or at the waterfalls there in Banyas. But there are some smelly, stinky places along the way. And yet it's all the Holy Land. In Israel, there's no distinction between spiritual and secular. Everywhere has Bible relevance. And the same is true in our lives and in our ministries. 
Life is a journey from God to God. And all the stuff in between, work and family and kids and fun and church, every season of our lives, every emotion and complaint and feeling deeply involves God. The role of the tour leader is to show folks how life and God relate. It's our job to connect the dots. Perhaps my favorite psalm is the 84th, the one we read earlier. It's a song of pilgrimage. It has three stanzas. A thirst for God, the trip to God, and then the thrill of God. It begins, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. And then the psalmist, he envies the birds who nest up in the rafters of the temple. They spend their whole life in the courts of the Lord. He only gets to visit at feast times. He longs for God, but longing isn't enough. He has to come. And the holy city was a difficult destination. From any direction, Jerusalem is uphill. The path led through deserts and over mountains. The highways were tight and windy and roaming with predators. Psalm 84 describes the pilgrims passing through the valley of Baca or weeping. Jerusalem was a destination that required some determination. And the same is true today. My friend, God stirs our hearts, but He won't force our steps. Various distractions and barriers get in our way from seeking God. And here again, the Psalms encourage brutal honesty. The historical books, they document David's sins, but it's the Psalms that reveal his emotional angst that was caused by those sins. Listen to Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned to the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. and my iniquity I have not hidden. Or Psalm 51. I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Notice honesty of heart begins with the repentance of sin. You see, the road to God no longer winds through narrow passes and across graveled ground and down hazardous highways. The obstacles we face are no longer pebbles, but pride. No longer food shortages, but faith shortages. No longer thieves, but things. No longer ledges, but lusts. No longer darkness, but distraction. No longer rock slides, but backslides. And here's the point. Simply desiring God is not enough. You've got to come to Him. Even pastors have to come to Him. Desiring Him and talking about Him and preaching about Him are not enough. We have to come to Him. In the words of the Sprite commercial, obey your thirst. (laughs) To know God, you have to get up from where you're at and come to where He is. And that doesn't just happen once in my life. It happens over and over and over. This is why the person who really wants to know God is a man or woman whose heart is set on pilgrimage. A pilgrim realizes that the blessings of God are a prize worth enduring anything and sacrificing everything to obtain. In fact, according to Psalm 84, a pilgrim is never disappointed. When he arrives at the temple, he says to God, A day in your courts is better than a thousand. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. God is so thrilling. The psalmist would swap a thousand days anywhere else. A thousand Saturdays in Sanford Stadium cheering for the beloved dogs for just 24 hours in God's presence. He'd rather be a doorkeeper in God's court and just sort of catch a glimpse of glory whenever the door cracked open than to have front row seats in the tents of wickedness. The glory of God satisfies him in a way that nothing else does. Well, these psalms, they total 2,461 verses. But I think one verse sets the stage for all the others. Psalm 84, verse 5. Blessed is the man whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Let's all prepare our hearts for our journey through the Psalms.